So it uh, gives me great pleasure to introduce Dr. Hugo Slim today. Um, Hugo is a visiting fellow of ELAC. I feel that the, the visiting in the title is probably a bit of a, of a misnomer, given that Hugo has been with us right from the, right from the beginning, and has contributed hugely to the work that ELAC has, has done in the time that we've been around. Um, Hugo has a very rich background and experience in issues to do with humanitarian ethics. He has worked for NGOs, he's worked for the United Nations, he has been a scholar and an academic for several years, he's worked as a mediator, and he has advised corporate clients. So he's sort of seen it from the full range of, of perspectives, and it's a great pleasure to have him speak today and to get some of the benefits of his experience and his wisdom. So his topic today is humanitarian ethics in armed conflict, <clears throat> aid agency dilemmas and responsibilities. Daffo, thank you very much and thank you all for coming and um, I hope you've got enough to eat and that you're able to munch away while I, while I talk and starve in front of you. Um, I, must, I must say at first that this is really a, a work in progress because um, one of the reasons, as Daphne says, I'm more permanently here than I used to be is that I am now starting a, a project on humanitarian ethics, which we've got some funding for from about five NGOs, Oxfam, Save the Children, British Red Cross, CAFOD, and, and World Vision and people. So I am going to spend the next year here at ELAC working to um, get a better understanding of ethical problems in um, humanitarian work, but also, I hope, producing some quite practical outputs that will help aid agencies um, become more ethically capable and confident um, and hopefully more ethically judicious as well. So this is a work in progress and I'm afraid I'm not going to deliver you all the solutions to every ethical dilemma that a humanitarian agency ever has. It's not going to be about that at all in a way. Um, but I hope this might in a way be the first discussion of our research project and that um, you will bring some ideas and questions um, to the table when we, when we have our discussion as well. So let's hope we can do that. To start with, of course, it's important to say that there are some archetypal humanitarian agency dilemmas. And if I list a few, it might get us in the mood. And of course, the most poignant and tragic of all, in a way, is perhaps the experience of the ICRC during the Holocaust in, in World War II. And one can imagine, as it happened, um, the experience of the ICRC delegate who repeatedly knocked on the door of Auschwitz to ask to be admitted, to be a humanitarian actor in that context. And, of course, we can also think of the masquerade in front of the ICRC at Treblinka in the Holocaust as well, when they were shown a model camp and the two delegates came away confused and impressed at what they had seen. And, of course, we can also think from the Holocaust of those extraordinary moments when ICRC could do something, but it was desperate and tragic and late and, in a sense, hopeless. So there are images of ICRC delegates running along the deportation trains in Greece, pushing food parcels through the window, the doors of the train. And there are similar examples of people like Frederick Bourne in the ICRC um, walking and, and driving alongside the deportation death marches that Eichmann finally led from Hungary and giving food, trying to argue with guards, trying to reason with the SS. So 
So those kind of ICRC images, of course, um, create issues of enormous ethical problem, ethical dilemma, ethical tragedy in humanitarian work. But more recently, of course, we can think of things like the World Food Programme deciding to work in North Korea around the famine there. And we can think also of um, agencies in Colombia and DRC setting up IDP camps for people who are now being displaced for the third or fourth time. So this whole notion of, oh, are we stuck in some cycle here? Are we playing into some extension of a, of a crisis of a conflict? And we can also think more recently of um, aid agencies working in the internment camps in Sri Lanka after the government um, offensive. And, of course, we can think back a little further, too, to agency dilemma and ethical agony when being invited by US armed forces to jointly plan the invasion of Iraq with them and to plan the humanitarian action that could flow with the invasion force. So those are the kind of things I suppose I would count as ethical moments for, for humanitarian agencies and, and when they would tend to describe themselves as having this thing they might call an ethical dilemma or an ethical agony of some kind. Um, I'm going to try and do just a few things in, in the next half an hour. And so I'm going to try and think a little about humanitarian action in the context of global ethics today. So perhaps put it in its place as an extraordinary form of altruism, in fact, that we, we have now. Then I want to look a little bit at the ends and means in humanitarian ethics as it is today. In other words, how humanitarians understand their own ethic, what they are trying to push as a moral project take that apart a little. And then thirdly, I'm going to look at categories of ethical problems that they would tend to present. And those I hope we're going to look at much more detail <laughs> in, in the year ahead and understand better. And then finally, I'm going to just posit some ideas around aid agency responsibility and what it would mean for an aid agency, a humanitarian agency, to, to move towards ethical solutions in its work. But first, of course, I, I also want to recognize a little that ethics as a term, of course, um, doesn't just mean a single approach, a single thing. There are, of course, as all of you know, varieties of schools and quite conflicting schools of approaches to ethics, how you decide on what to do. And I'm just going to talk about probably three or four of them. And the first one, of course, is virtue ethics, um, which, of course, we would trace back to Aristotle and the idea that a good life is lived with the aim of living a good life and in accordance with certain virtues. And of course, the, the tradition of virtues is a very important and um, pervasive one, and having a bit of a renaissance, as, as you know. The second one, of course, would be called the deontological um, tradition of ethics, um, would be flagged with people like Immanuel Kant, and it would be thinking very clearly about duties and rights and obligations and those mystical things called imperatives, things you just have to do because they're right always to do. And then third, of course, um, emerging from practically-minded empirical Brits, we would have the consequentialist school of ethics. We would have utilitarians, people who would say, you know, that it is possible to decide on what to do now on the basis of 
the consequences you want and expect from a certain action. So you get rule-based utilitarianism and things like that as another form. And then, of course, today we have to engage with postmodern ethics with an idea that there are no grand narratives to modernity, no grand goals we can pursue, that everything is fragmented, and therefore ethics becomes a highly localised, um, fragmented part of different little narratives that we have to negotiate without reference to some great goal. So those are four parts of ethics which I think are playing at the moment in humanitarian thinking, so I thought it would be worth to flag them at the beginning. But moving on now to think about what place humanitarian action has in global ethics. It is an extraordinary thing today that there is the desire and the capacity to reach any person in any country suffering from war or disaster. And that is really quite a phenomenal change um, in the expansion of altruism in the last 50 years, really. So that whether you are in Congo, or Burma, or now Mexico, or Nigeria, the chances are someone will turn up in something called a humanitarian agency and will make an effort to understand your needs and reach out to meet them somehow. And that really is, I think, quite phenomenal. And this seems to confirm the sort of ideas of moral progress that people like Peter Singer have been arguing for 30 years. Um, And in a way that Adam Smith argued hundreds of years before Peter Singer, that our moral sentiment, our sympathy, our fellow feeling, as Smith called it, um, is something that reaches beyond immediate circles of friendship and family and um, country in Smith's form, in patriotism, and actually becomes universal in its ability to empathise, sympathise, and act. And of course, Singer um, and today's evolutionary psychologists take this up much more biologically and um, in terms of evolutionary science. And Singer would argue, like many, that our species has developed altruism in a series of obviously what Singer calls expanding circles of empathy. And the first one, of course, is kin-based. I help my family, my parents, my children, my cousins, because I'm genetically driven to do it, because there's something in my DNA which says I want my DNA to survive. So there is some kind of kinship altruism that is observable in almost every animal um, and is considered to be the sort of core of our altruism. And then, of course, the second aspect that evolutionary psychologists and Singer and everybody have noticed in altruism is reciprocal altruism. Because there comes another thing, and it's an extraordinary thing. You can, hear, you can look at birds giving warnings to other birds. You can um, see people, you know, animals that don't know each other helping each other and saving each other, and we do it. And it's on the basis of reciprocity. And it's, you know, you do my lice and I'll do your lice. It's that kind of scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, literally. And that's where people observe reciprocity emerging as a driver of altruism. But that very seldom goes beyond the group. And, of course, Singer's great insight was that it is reason 
It is thinking that allows us to make that extraordinary imaginary step and to take the objective position, as he calls it, of the other. And then when we start thinking of how the other might have interests and experience and things, then we can imagine altruistically way beyond our kin and way beyond our group. And that, in a sense, evolutionary psychologists would argue now, is what is happening now in the way that we spread out and feel the whole world to be of interest to us. And we have an ability now that we do over and over again to take the position of distant, unmet others, people who we've never known, will never know, and never meet. And we demand moral action on their behalf and for them. So these expanding circles, I think, are manifest most evidently in humanitarian action today and its desire and capability to reach anyone in any, world, any place experiencing armed conflict. So that's where this ethics sits, I think. And it's not surprising, perhaps, that it is a little confused, having grown so quickly in the last few years. Um, and, of course, we have to notice very early that it is still a little occidental um, in its system. Um, the, the main organisation of humanitarian system is very Western, very driven by OECD money and agencies. Huge aspects of Oriental, or whatever you want to call it, um, altruism are less easy to see massive patterns and trends of Islamic altruism which operate in slightly different ways and not particularly organized and their trumpets are not blown through the UN and, and other systems so we, we don't observe them but they are probably bigger still. So how does this um, expanding altruistic humanitarian project understand its own ethics? Um, what is this organized humanitarian action believing of its morals, if you like? Um, in the last 60 years, there's been an enormous amount of writing of ethics by humanitarian agencies. They've been very keen to try and write down what they believe and get confessional, if you like, about, about their professional, professional about it. And the first moment, of course, that was very important was in 1965 when the great Swiss... Genevan um, ICRC lawyer Jean Pictet when he wrote on behalf of the Red Cross the Red Cross principles and of course they were seven um, principles humanity, impartiality, neutrality independence and the other three that we name really care about um, what are they, voluntarism, universalism I can never remember them um, then of course you know, people sort of thought the Red Cross did that and that was fine. But then in the 90s, NGOs realized, gosh, we're doing a lot of this war stuff too now. We're right in the thick of Bosnia. We're right in the thick of Rwanda, Somalia, um, Angola. We better write our own version of this. So non-Red Cross NGOs, under the guidance of the, of the Red Cross, wrote the Code of Conduct, um, which was first drafted in around 91, emerging really out of Somalia. Um, and driven a lot from ex-Oxfam people like Peter Walker, who's now at Tufts, and um, Nick Stockton. And they came up with a very similar ten-point code, which was very Red, red Cross-based. And then later, in about 98, a thing called the Humanitarian Charter emerged, which linked those principles very directly to international law. The laws of Geneva around international humanitarian law and 
refugee law in particular. And the Humanitarian Charter linked humanitarian action legally with laws and rights, and not only with ethical principles. And that's important too. And then they went further still and decided to quantify what those ethics and rights might look like. And so they wrote a book of standards called the Sphere Standards, which are now, I think, in their third edition or something, where they said, right, you know, if you're going to respond to the right for water, it's going to be 10 litres a day per person. If you're going to do shelter, the right to shelter, it's going to be this. If you're going to do the right to food, it's going to be this. And again, the same quite ex-Oxfamy, ex-Fam mafia put together a core group of very concrete, commodified standards of what it would mean to have your ethical needs met ethically by a humanitarian agency and have your rights realised. So we have that body of um, principle and law and standards which has all been woven together in the last few years very deliberately. Um, but in its strict sense, what is the moral composition of the humanitarian ethic, if you like? And let me start by observing some family resemblances between the schools I've already mentioned of ethics. First of all, there is a family resemblance with virtue theory, because, of course, Pictet's seven Red Cross principles mirror exactly, in some ways, in a sense, certainly in their structure, Christianity's seven virtues, which are, of course, faith, hope, and charity, bolted onto Aristotle's four key virtues. So we're already seeing a virtue theory of ethics at play in the composition of humanitarian ethics. And also, we're seeing some quite heavy deontological ethics at play in humanitarian professions of ethics. We are seeing a phrase called the humanitarian imperative um, come shouting through Article 1 of the Code of Conduct. Um, but imperatives abound not just in the code and not just in sphere, what it would look like in water and tents and health and shelter, but also in linking humanitarian action so closely to law and to deontological injunctions and prohibitions in IHL and in human rights law and in refugee law. So we see a family resemblance that is pretty categorical. There is a categorical trait in humanitarian ethics. And I think we can see a family resemblance to consequentialists as well, because funnily enough, despite all the deontology and virtue ethics, when you listen to a lot of humanitarians agonising, they are usually to be found and heard agonising consequentially. They're usually worrying and thinking hypothetically, not categorically, as Kant would say. So they're thinking, what will happen if I do this? What will happen if I don't do this? What will happen if they do this? So there is some consequential family resemblances too in humanitarian ethics at the moment. And I think there's a bit of postmodern um, family resemblance too in that famous shrug of our MSF colleagues, the Médecins Sans Frontières. Bah, bah. What is the point of any? There is no meta-narrative. There is no grand project. These people are just dying. They're dying as, you know, as Lyotard or Di might say... They are the different of this moment, the disruption of history, when they are silent and everyone discusses around them and they have no place in ethical discussion. So you get this sort of postmodern despair as well in, in MSF thinking, I think, as well. So if that is the various 
schools of ethics and how they play in and out of humanitarian ethics, let me try and look in more detail about what humanitarians believe of their project. And the first thing I think to say about humanitarian ethics, about trying to go around the world and help people in war and disaster, is that humanitarian ethics is a teleology of persons, not progress. So really, in its most pure and honest and direct form, the project is the person, the person before you. Um, that is the project of humanitarian action, to help and preserve that person. The person is the end in humanitarian ethics. And that, of course, means it doesn't have a great project of political progress. It's not really concerned, in truth, about the good society. It is most deeply and solely concerned about the person before you. Um, and those t that, that teleology, if you like, in ethical terms, that telos, comes out most clearly in the first two principles of humanitarian action, which if you would if we were to borrow Christian imagery, the cardinal virtues of humanitarian action, which are humanity and impartiality. And humanity sets the goal of the project. The goal is the preservation of the human person. <laughs> that it means their physical survival, their breathing, fleshly, bodily survival. But more than that, it is the preservation of the person in dignity, which is a phrase that Pictet particularly makes great emphasis on in his commentary. Preservation of the person in dignity. So it's really about all their needs. It's about their essential flourishing, not just survival. So that is the goal of humanitarian action, the person. And impartiality, the second principle, sets out really the the belief that that is to apply to all people. It is a principle of total equality. And that is the principle that aid and humanitarian action should be given only on the basis of need alone. And that is the second cardinal virtue, cardinal principle of humanitarian action. Aid is only given proportionate to need. It has nothing to do with your class, your race, your side of the conflict, your politics, um, your gender, or anything. It is about need, and therefore it is a vision of total equality of person before their suffering, as it were. So those are the two cardinal virtues of humanitarian action. But humanitarian ethics is also a practical ethics, and it has two key operational principles that allows it to operate. How is it going to go into other people's war when people are fighting full of hatred and fire and heat and loathing and get a patch of ground to operate in, get a permission to operate? Now the next two principles enable that. They are neutrality and independence. And these are not values I mean, nobody is saying it's good to be neutral. We should all go around being neutral. Nobody is saying it's good, it's a moral good to be independent. We should all go around being independent. We can't. We wouldn't thrive and flourish. But they are saying these are really important operational postures to adopt if you want to work in other people's wars. And neutrality 
is really a means of gaining proximity by maintaining distance. It's the best way I've ever heard it described, actually, by a veteran ICRC guy the other day in, in Geneva who'd, who'd worked a lot in the Vietnam War. And he said, neutrality is the way we get close by keeping our distance. And I think that is probably a pretty good consummation of, of that. Um, you don't get involved, you don't take sides, you don't have a political view on the conflict, you don't care about winners and who wins. You, you are ultimately disinterested in the politics, and therefore you can get this precious proximité, as they call it in, in ICRC and MSF humanitarian discourse. Independence is the second operational principle. And this is very important because it allows you to be impartial. If neutrality allows you to get close, independence allows you to be impartial. Because it means that you have freedom to make your own decisions about who you give your food and shelter and water and protection to. So the crucial aspect of independence is the freedom to make impartial decisions and impartial distributions. No one of or two or three of the parties can tell you who to give to. Now, those are the four really key ethical principles of humanitarian action. Um, and then in the Code of Conduct that emerged in the late 90s, six more were added, in a sense, as professional principles. And these are how you do that well as a professional humanitarian worker. So there are things like building local capacity, participation, involving everybody in their own relief so you're not making uninformed outsider-based decisions, you're using insider involvement and participation, you're always trying to reduce vulnerabilities, um, and you don't use degrading media imagery of people. So those are the professional principles, um, in a sense that are largely drawn from development work, how you do things well in community development work. So those really are the, if you like, the big ten principles that drive the ethics and that see humanitarians setting out their ethics at the moment. And I just want to take a little detour to see if in those principles there is in fact an ethics creep of some kind. Um, does the teleology of the person, which I'm saying is the core end of any humanitarian action, is the person. There is no political project, just the person. Does it actually creep into wider ethics around the good society. And I think it, it possibly does. There is probably leakage and expansion, and it's certainly been criticised many times, for, for spreading out and perhaps having the seeds or the Trojan horse of three other big ethical projects. And the first is peace. Is humanitarian ethics also a peace ethic um, that has a project to reduce violence in our species? Is it actually setting out, really, as well, to make us more peaceful? Um, and I think this is an interesting point, and there's, as you know, a whole new wave of current thesis that conflict is reducing, and you can show incidence-based that conflicts are down, but our conflictness as a, as a species may well be being overcome, and this is Steven Pinker and Human Security Report and all sorts of other people arguing this point. Um, and they accredit a lot of this to humanitarian action and to the new great global humanitarian industry that I spoke about at the beginning that is, in a sense, putting... Um, 
a reductive pressure on violence around the world, trying, in effect, to stop it. Is that true? Um, I don't think most humanitarians are out to reduce violence. They're out to limit it. But there's no doubt that in the process they are probably reducing violence. They are probably contributing to a culture of peace in certain parts of international politics. There's also no doubt that they've had a real effect in reducing violence, not just limiting it, but really reducing it. If you compare the Armenian experience in, in what's probably you know, one of the most brutal state formations of modern times, the creation of modern Turkey, um, and you compare that with Darfur, so it was a very similar strategy that you terrorize people, you kick them out, and you hope that the sun and the thirst and the starvation does the rest, which was a quote from the Turkish communiques at the time. Now, it did do the rest in Armenia, because there was no one to pick up, in, in Turkey, to pick up all the Armenians and put them in IDP camps and save their lives. In Darfur, that didn't happen. IDP camps were set up, and many lives which would have been lost in 1919 in Turkey, in a sense, were saved in Darfur much later. So there is no doubt that humanitarians are reducing the incidence of, viol of death and violence, I think. But I, I'm not sure that the project itself is about peace, but some humanitarians may hope that it is. The second area that may see some ethics creep in the project is, of course, liberal development, because not... All humanitarian agencies are ICRC and Médecins Sans Frontières. They are all development agencies also doing humanitarian work. They're what we call multi-mandate agencies. So they actually espouse and seek the good society, a much wider project of progress around liberal democracy, in a sense. And there's no doubt that a lot of the work they do and the six professional principles of the Code of Conduct, capacity building, inclusion, participation in, in humanitarian work, is part of a development project. So the ethic may well wander that way quite a lot. And of course the third area where humanitarian ethics may enter into a much wider global ethic is the area of justice. Because of its determined link to law and humanitarian norms. Humanitarian laws mean that humanitarian action is also about justice around crimes against the person. So the telos of the person inevitably involves some kind of notion of justice when it's tied to law. And law, like aid, becomes a humanitarian means. And so humanitarian ethics is not just concerned with the protection and assistance of the person, but also with a much wider global project of restorative justice and standard setting around behaviour. So this may not be ethics creep across the whole area, but I think there's no doubt that um, there is some ethical carry, if you like, or continuity between the strict humanitarian ethic and these other three things of peace, liberal development, and particularly justice, I think. Just to move on now and think about categories of ethical problems in humanitarian action. Um, I think it's fair to say, and I'm just going to sort of list a few that I've heard mostly, which I hope to really drill down on in the next year and, and really categorise a typology of key ethical problems that humanitarian agencies feel they face. Um, but probably the biggest moral fear of 
humanitarian agencies is this idea of doing more harm than good. That's their big moral angst. That's probably what sort of keeps them up at night more than anything else. And of course, it's not a new fear. Whenever you try and help someone, you run that risk. There's a famous quote from a 4th century desert father called, um, you know, I think he's called Pathnutus. And he was one of those guys that, you know, sat on the end of a pole or sat up a tree or lived in a cave for years on end and just looked wisely upon the world. And when people came to talk to him about, you know, helping other people, he sort of, you know, through his long Monty Python-esque beard, he muttered, um, many a time have I seen down by the river a man get stuck in the mud and several other men rush in to help him and in helping him, pushing him even further into the mud. And we know this is a problem, that if you can rush to help people, in that process of help, there is a potential for making things worse. And that is probably the big moral anxiety of humanitarian workers. But if I could now list their, you know, some of their key <coughs> problems that they present, as I'm hearing them at the moment, the first would be an obvious one around triage, in a sense. Decisions around widespread need and limited resources. The natural problem of any person trying to meet needs with limited resources, a sort of triage um, problem of ethics that we would expect in the NHS as well or anywhere else. Then there are more technical um, ones to do with the nature of emergency work and distant places and covering large areas of ground, which is a sort of speed quality trade-off. So humanitarians will worry um, about not meeting their standards. Is it ethically okay to drop standards sometimes to prioritise speed and response of some kind, even if it's an imperfect response. So you get that kind of professional um, ethical worry as well. Then you get a lot of that multi-mandate worry I talked about, where you have an agency which might be like Oxfam or Save the Children, which, like the NHS, is running an ambulance service and a big public health service. And how do they play off those two internal mandates? You know, How do they... Um, resource them, how do they when they're running their emergency bit, not talk about wider human rights and education and other things they care about normally that it might be being attacked or whatever then there is a, in a sense the big clusters of ethical problems that you hear agencies talk about most in the media I suppose and the first one is that of co-option this real anxiety that they are going to be co-opted by power in a war, and their humanitarian aid is going to be instrumentalised towards other ends than their telos of the person, if you like. And this is, I mean, several examples would be Hutu extremists in the Goma camps in 1994-95, when humanitarians are feeding a camp of, say, a quarter of a million people, fled the... the um, RPF's victory in, in Rwanda at the end of the genocide. And in that camp, um, the Hutu extremists are actually using those resources, using those social organisations to um, gain control, rearm, re-establish a force that could hopefully try and attack again. So is humanitarian aid being co-opted and instrumentalised into a wider political project that the humanitarians don't you know, never intend and have no interest in and no right to be engaged in. And you see that, of course, too, in the PRT's debate in Afghanistan, the same kind of thing, and the whole um, anxiety about being 
force multipliers um, for counterinsurgency by NATO and, and WAM strategies in Afghanistan and Iraq and elsewhere. Um, and you see it in northern Uganda and Darfur, too, in humanitarian agencies and Nashrilenka, um, feeling very co-opted into strategies of concentration of populations in warring areas that have very significant military and political um, strategy and advantage to them as well in terms of creating controllable ghettos and draining the, whatever it is, the fish from the sea or whatever um, in counterinsurgency theory. Um, coercion is the next big ethical area they worry about um, that they will be coerced and forced to work in limited areas which have nothing to do with being in proportion, in proportion to need, but only in proportion to the preference of one of the parties. And this has been felt very strongly lately in Pakistan in mixed emergencies where you have floods or whatever in areas of conflict where agencies have felt absolutely coerced into only going where the government wants them to go or being prevented from going where it may so be that insurgents or movements against the government are suffering. So extraordinary problems of coercion that raise ethical issues about agency presence and agency options to deal with that. And then, of course, there's the bystanding anxiety. There is the knocking on the door at Auschwitz. There's the watching, the powerlessness, the ethical problems that come from powerlessness, and trying to decide with real conscience when that powerlessness is inevitable and there's nothing you can do, or whether there is something you could do and you're not doing it and you're ending up being a bystander who should be doing something. So, bystander problems. Then, of course, problems of justice. Depot's crew at the International Criminal Court doing things in Uganda and Darfur. Should humanitarian agencies be, be cooperating them? Should they be glad that justice is being in? Enforced, or is justice creating hum humanitarian backlash and real problems um, by its new assertiveness in such wars? And then there is the old, old problem too around advocacy and around balancing words and deeds in humanitarian action. And when is the time to speak out? when you're seeing such terrible things, when you know things, when you know Ethiopians are being resettled from the highlands, when you know um, people are being massacred and killed, when you know the government is diverting aid or whatever, when do you speak out? When do you keep quiet? When do you prioritise words over staying on the ground? When do you risk being thrown out? That's another very common um, dilemma that agencies would feel. And that whole area... The next one, of when your aid might be feeding a war. I mean, so much of the critique of humanitarian aid in the last, the popular critique, has been that sort of stupid, lazy strapline of aid extends wars, aid prolongs wars, as if that was a simple calculation, and as if it was a calculation that um, was being made by aid agencies themselves, and they could just step back, not give any aid, and the war would stop. Um, that's another one, how you know where your aid is being diverted, used badly, and you have to stop it, and when you can stand up to power in order to stop some of that. So what are your red lines, in other words, and when might you stay and go, and what are your exit lines? That's another one. And then finally, of course, the whole area of quality. 
is an ethical issue. Um, to be a humanitarian agency doesn't just mean you get out there, you have an aeroplane, you have a white Toyota, you can get there and you start being good. You have to be good enough at doing what you're doing. G.K. Chesterton um, famously wrote once that if something's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. Um, and that's true up to a point, but there comes to a point when it's not worth doing badly. And when you do it badly, um, you should either get out of the way and let somebody else do it, or not do it so badly. And that whole point about quality is a big, big problem for um, aid agencies. And it's a big problem for the free market in aid agencies. When anyone can start an NGO, we can all self-mandate ourselves and go to Bosnia, go to Sri Lanka, go to wherever we want. Um, quality becomes a really big ethical issue in humanitarian work. So just to, just to conclude, and then I hope we can talk about some of this. Um, none of these types of ethical problems are unusual or especially problematic. I mean, I think aid agency people feel they have very special moral dilemmas because a lot of the situations they work in are very extreme and brutal and um, highly politicised and highly mediatised sometimes and incredibly uncomfortable to suddenly arrive in and start trying to have an effect in. But really none of those ethical problems are unusual or unique. Um, they arise in many professions and many areas of moral life. You could be having those dilemmas in the NHS. You could be having them in business, in a mining company, or um, in banking, or in, in many areas of professional life. You could certainly be having them as a military professional, um, or as a lawyer, and you should be having them as a journalist as well, quite a lot of them as well. So I'm, I'm encouraged, I think, from my initial look, that these are not exceptional, unique problems. A lot of ethicists have worked on these kind of issues before. They can be spelt out and, and worked through. Um, and the encouraging thing, as I said at the beginning, the fact remains that more people than ever before are being protected and assisted in war. So this ethical project is having ethical effect. Um, and agencies are making conscious moral choices all the time. They, they are being ethical or trying to act ethically and having ethical discussions and using ethical frameworks to try and work out what to do. Um, but a lot of the choices they make are ones that leave them feeling very uncomfortable rather than very wrong. And I think very often this feeling of discomfort, which is not surprising in a lot of the situations they face, they misread into feeling wrong, but actually I think they're feeling very uncomfortable, which is natural in a lot of these situations, rather than being very wrong. Um, and this is not surprising, I think, when you consider the enormous powers and forces that are really dominating their choices in, in a war. So I think just moving forward, and this is what I hope we'll be looking at in our research here over the next year, is there are three key areas, I think, for agencies to focus on when they do ethics and they try and deal with that catalogue of problems and how many more or less there are. And the first is responsibility analysis. It's incredibly important, as we know in ethics, to look at who has responsibility for what in any given situation. And there's a tendency, I think, in... Western aid agencies to colonise responsibility and say, oh, we're responsible for everything that happens in this war, we should have stopped this, we should have helped that, and it's simply not true or possible. And one of the major steps to take is to look at who's responsible for what violation. Um, 
if there's a policy of rape or an epidemic of rape in the DRC, who is, who is truly responsible for that? And you know, you are always responding to that, but you are not primarily responsible for it. And it would be the same if governments decide to create ghettos in Darfur or Sri Lanka. Um, you didn't create those ghettos. Um, therefore, you're not responsible for them. So responsibility analysis is very important. The second area, of course, is really developing a, a proper approach to what ethicists would call due deliberation, that you really have to think through these problems properly and you have to show that you've, you've th thought through them and you have to think through them with the right people, asking the right people, involving the right people. And therefore, in any situation, you have to be clear as an agency of your intention, this is just strict moral philosophy, if you like, your intention in that situation, what are you trying to achieve, what is your telos, your end, um, what do you know about the situation? What do you need to know more about to make a better decision? What don't you know? What could you know? What could you never know? Um, and then what is your capability? What are you really capable of doing? Because all of us can only be judged as morally responsible or culpable <coughs> on what we are able to do or not. <coughs> so taking that very seriously and then also being very serious about mitigating the worst effects of decisions you make that you can't <coughs> avoid. So deliberation, I think, is something that is being done in agencies, but I think could be done a bit more <coughs> consciously and with a bit more skills and ethical language. <coughs> and the final thing, I think, is, going back to Aristotle probably, is the cultivation of an organisational culture that really cultivates the humanitarian virtues. And we probably need to understand a bit more about what humanitarian virtues are, because they won't just be humanity, impartiality, neutrality, independence. There'll be ways of listening, ways of working with people. And I think I'm interested to see if we can use virtue theory a bit more and think about humanitarian virtues and cultivate humanitarians in line with those virtues so they are making balanced decisions. Um, and whether or not the idea of organisational conscience can also play a part. Um, so that if you're working for, say, the children somewhere, and you're faced with a difficult decision, as you often are, you can honestly think, what does the organisation do here? What's my organisational conscience tell me here? What do I know um, about how we work in these situations, the choices <coughs> we are likely to make? Um, and use organisational conscience in some way. Um, and that, of course, in virtue theory terms, means cultivating and educating people in ethics, in the virtues, in moral judgment. And I think agencies need to take that seriously and um, look at cases that have happened before, talk to people about history, talk through decisions that need to be made, anticipate them, and in a sense get ethically fit um, before they have to ask people to go into very difficult situations. So just to conclude, finally, um, going back to this research, we're trying to do ELAC over the next year. Our purpose in 2012, and we have promised to work with these agencies and deliver the first text on humanitarian ethics um, by the end of 2012. I think we want to help humanitarian agencies become more routinely and more deeply ethically capable organisations. Um, we want to help them 
be able to identify and deliberate ethical problems and to communicate and account for their choices. I think one of the most important things is this, if humanitarian aid goes on getting bigger and becomes a sort of global welfare project, which it could well do, um, it's very important that humanitarian leaders are accountable to people that give them money here out of their own pockets, to governments that give them money, and to people they work with so they can explain their actions ethically. Um, and that's what we'll be trying to do over the next year here at um, ELAC. So this time next year, I hope I'll have something concrete to report, but that, I hope, has set out the ground on how I understand humanitarian ethics, how I think humanitarian agencies understand it, and where the key challenges are. And I hope, if I talk again this time next year, I'll have a nice book in my hand which will have all the answers and how they can be ethical in the best sense. Thank you.